Hey guys, due to entirely foreseen, totally avoidable circumstances, Podcast Guys Talking Erratic Errata is going to go on a two-week hiatus. We know this is a disappointment and that nothing can make up for it, that we alone send a shining beam of meaning into otherwise meaningless lives lived by rote. As an apology, we'll instead put out two episodes of an experimental thing we're doing called Podcast Guys Talking Erratic Errata colon Podcast Guys Talking to Erratic Errata. So get hype! Podcast Guys takes a long view and a long price. Spoilers will be commonplace. Listen at your own risk. Good morning, faithful reader. Welcome, fortunate seeker. This is Podcast Guys Talking Erratic Errata. Podcast Guys Talking Erratic Errata is a whirlwind reread of a practical guide to evil, where a historian and a literature scholar tackle the big questions about one of the greatest novels of the age, such as Will these name dreams be a regular thing? Will these hangings be a regular thing? When will we find out who the three sacrifices were? At the worst possible moment, surely. Mercy might be the mark of a great man, but then so's a tombstone. Extract from the Personal Memoirs of Dread Emperor Terribilis II. According to our dear Dread Emperor, the commander in the name dream is a good man. She, uh, does not survive. This chapter opens with a dream where we see Black as Squire slaying some commander in some fortress with the aid of Apprentice and Ranger. And when Catherine wakes, she finds it's been a few days since the events of last chapter she's retrieved by captain and they go to watch a show which happens to be some hanging and Catherine ends up with some mixed feelings i think we can say i think that's fair to say yeah it's uh this is a strange chapter in that if you take out the dream which is obviously very important and part of cat's experience if you take out the dream basically one thing happens in this chapter and it's a pretty short chapter and yet that one thing is very defining. It sets the stage for so much of what is to come. It's a, it's a pretty, uh, pretty pivotal chapter, I would say. Now, in the dream, we see Black, or I suppose that's not his name at that point. We see Squire, or for short, Squy, face off with the commander. We do. And it's interesting, I, I had commented or I was... Thinking about when I was reading this, the commander, obviously we know basically nothing about her other than she seems to probably be Callowin in some way or aligned with Callow more so. And there's, it's it's a throwaway person, character, never comes up again as far as I recall. Um, and we, we've talked about, especially with Captain, how more simple names, those with without descriptors to them, um, often have, if not more power, more things they can do. It's a broader field. The commander is an incredibly broad title, I guess. It's not the general of the West or the tyrant of the legions or what have you. It's the commander. It overshadows all of that. It feels like it's it's a step above any kind of specific name. And while I understand that not every character who seems interesting can get a lot of <laughs> a lot of words dedicated to them. Otherwise, this would be, you know, something like a 700 chapter long book, and that would be absurd. I'm curious about this person. I I wonder who they are, what they're doing, how they got such a cool name. It's just neat that the very, very, very side characters are intriguing like that. Commander isn't though unexplored, simply not explored further, and we get an interesting moment as. Squire Black sneaks up on her to sword her in the back. The commander, without turning around, says, quiet or not, you reek of blood. Which 
suggests that she's tuned in to the story in some significant way. If Commander weren't a really story-relevant hero here, heroes do get put down. They don't necessarily get the chance to put up a great fight every time, nor do villains. But here, she can smell, so to speak, the blood by which Squire Black is stained. And I assume Squire Black does not really reek of blood, because he seems like a bather, you know? Uh, In fact, we'll get to that momentarily. Which is to say that we have another instance here of someone describing a sense of theirs in a a mystical sense, a a third sense, if you will, beyond the usual two, with a very visceral verb. I think that's nifty. Agree. And I, I think we see, despite her obviously limited role in the story, she's a pretty important person in Maddie's story. Um just given how some of the descriptions used later on. So a powerful hero who can sense death, who can sense villains nearby. That makes sense. I, I can get with that. And yeah, it, it is it is another, like you said, it's good to have someone other than Kat using the wrong the wrong. It's good to have someone other than Kat using an unexpected sense with which we're familiar to become aware of, in this case, murder, not, you know, eat Leaning evil, I imagine, is the the main issue, but yeah. Evil does not mean filthy. Black informs us, with a pretty Catherine quip, that he bathes every few days, which I just think is really interesting. Historical bathing standards vary wildly. Uh, Black bathes every few days. Interesting, not surprising, given the real-world given the real-world analog for the predecessors to modern-day praise. Um, are you know we it's it's pretty roman makes sense that bathing is a actual part of the culture commander retorts that some things do not wash off with water and this is very true listeners if you find yourselves in possession of a lot of blood that you need to get out of clothing you should use hydrogen peroxide or soap if that's the best you've got scrubbing in cold water the water will contribute but you need to scrub and scrub with hydrogen peroxide. If you can get an enzymatic uh, detergent, that will be even better. But I suspect that if you are currently on route to an assassination, that may not be at on hand. That does not mean you have to walk around like an amateur. Excellent advice. Uh, tune in next week for more laundering advice, I suppose. Names are obtained in different ways. Some are born named, such as the cursed. Some achieve namedness, such as, say, Catherine Squire Foundling, and some have namedness thrust upon them, such as the Hierarch. Commander, we learn, is of the second category. We're told that this name is one that can only be earned through years of hard fighting. This is worth noting. If Commander were a name that simply the commanding officer of a certain Callowin unit always received, Oh, I name you Commander of the King's Guard. Da 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 da. You're named now. That'd be great, but something in me says that probably would not be the most powerful name around. Not if it were handed off. But I don't know why I have that sense. Yeah, I, I think I would agree with you in expectation. The number of names that are actually just handed off seems to be pretty limited, though. And I imagine that anything like that the people who end up in that position have a story behind them anyway. So they are either earning or being built up towards the name regardless. The, you know, the fact that Callowin monarchs have a name automatically, more or less, doesn't necessarily mean that if you grabbed a peasant off the street and threw a crown on him, they'd have the name. They might, but I think the narrative weight of the name would mean that wouldn't happen necessarily, um, unless... It did happen, and then you had the Beggar King or something like that. Uh, A slightly different take on it, perhaps. Um, Based on what Catherine says next chapter, if you did that, it would be likely to be the long-lost heir of the royal line. True, yeah. I mean, that's and that's exactly it. That goes back to the um, born named that you you talked about. But yeah, I I agree that it feels like earning your name gets you a little farther in some ways. Not always the case. Cat's 
pretty dang important and powerful, and it's more or less given to her. Not in the same way, but it had to be offered by the person above her. For her particular story. with Right, and for this name, not her later one. And what about the 90% of the book in between the names? I'm pretty sure this whole story is about names, and Kat must have hers the entire time. Making them names that are had for a long time. We get a we do get a little reference to Ranger here, which I enjoy whenever she comes up before she's actually on screen and reveals herself to be the worst. It's it's <laughs> she's a mentor of sorts to Black. It sounds like sorry to Maddie. It sounds like because the the term used here is Ranger's tutelage, and that feels weird to. I would much rather have found out that in the height of his power, he met Ranger, or at least once the calamities had started to form or or something. It feels weird that as a squire, as a young man, as he's still coming into who he is, as he's growing up, he's being trained by the person that eventually becomes his significant other. It's mm, not not a good look for Ranger, I'm not going to lie to you. But speaking of... The Calamities, we do get a reference to another one, actually another couple of the Calamities in the during this named dream. First of whom is actually Assassin, or might be. The commander keeps calling Squire Black Assassin, lowercase a, and he replies at some point, not Assassin, Squire Black. And is Assassin a thing yet has the name assassin ever existed actually i'm i'm curious there is no apparent answer in the text but is this just like if later on theodosian kept calling the white knight fool 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 and eventually said no not the fool the white knight da, da, da. or is there actually an assassin also fool would be a great name i don't know if the assassin well it's definitely she definitely wouldn't be referring to well, hold on here. While he definitely wouldn't be referring to the assassin that we know for very obvious reasons, we've got a couple layers, a couple different people, a couple different things in that role between now and when we run into him later, I would be shocked to find out that the name exists only with Eudokia. The assassin may be a standalone name elsewhere, or it may always be a subservient name, a an offshoot name of Scribe. But I can't imagine that right now is the first instance of something like Assassin being used and having that name. What if? It's just such a base level archetype. It's got to be. It's got to be ancient. Every every medieval fantasy story's got assassins. You've got to have the big assassin. Well, maybe assassinations don't happen much in this world. Oh, yeah, good point, maybe. How many times did the high seat change hands in one day? Not eight or something? Yeah, (laughs) several. (laughs) So, yeah, I don't think assassination's a big deal. We also get Apprentice. Uh, That was when the bell started ringing. Three rings, a pause, and then three rings again. The signal for a fire in the fortress. Apprentice had already started his work. It is fun to have apprentice here to have pre-warlock here I, I don't know there's there's something about the calamities i have no problem with black having once been the squire because of how much information we get about that i don't have a problem with black meeting up with the rest of the calamities but there's something so strange about the warlock having been the apprentice it just it i don't know if it's incongruous to me but there's there's something there that just it feels different and it it's very cute to have the whole, I don't know, father-son name. It I just like it. One of only two... No, if we allow for great dysfunction, one of three Calamity, whose child inherits their name. Or at least their position. What do you mean? To which three are you referring? Masego inherits Wakesa's apprenticeship. Cat inherits Squire Black's squireship. And... Indrani inherits Ranger's Ranger in. Ah, okay. I was not I was not treating their relationship as uh parent child, but fair enough. It's abusive and terrible, but if we assign her a parent That's a really strong if in that sentence though. I don't know that we do. I, 
I don't. Well, let me say, let me rephrase that. I don't know that I do. Guardian, sure. Mentor, sure. Parent is rough. That makes Kat and Andrani sisters. Yucko. Not merely calamities appear, though. We get our first mention, I think, I think first mention, of Grem, whose clansmen would be in position shortly. That's all we get, but hey, Grem's around here. I wonder if he's actually secretly a contender for an ancient and powerful name that he just doesn't bother with. It really is. It is good to have the whole gang together. Maybe not the whole gang. Most of the gang. Several of the gang together for this this dream. Introduce us to some characters. Introduce Cat to some people. For us, it's seeing some old friends, and for Cat, it's seeing some new enemies, acquaintances, distant relatives. But then, after the mention of Grim, we come to a line that is potentially pretty central to what this dream is about. What why Cat is having this specific dream? Position of Black Knight appears vacant. Commander identifies Black as one of the pups who wants to be the next Black Knight, but he made an error in coming there tonight. Quote, it'll be my pleasure to nip you in the bud before you become a real problem. Commander is ready to just put down a villain before it can rise up, which is what the very villain who rises up anyway after getting rid of Commander does for years and 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 years before raising up Catherine, uh, not nipping her in the bud, but rather blossoming her in the bud so that she can become a real problem. And I think that's fun. Blossoming her in the bud, huh? What are you going to do to someone's bud if you don't want to nip it? Uh, I suppose you've got me there. Blossoming it, it is. Blossoming. Like many flowers. Like perhaps a buttercup. A princess buttercup. Wow. It is, that is maybe the worst transition we've had yet, and I really appreciate it. It's it's good to, or it's worthwhile, I suppose, to bring up the cute little reference, probably, or at least call back to the same trope of the of Black saying, uh, here I am, this would be the moment where I reveal that I was left-handed all along. It It's just... I don't know, a cute little thing in there for Maddie to, to throw out as a, I don't know, distraction before the big finale of the fight, um, which is pretty simply Ranger, unsurprisingly, putting an arrow into Commander to start the <laughs> the volley, uh, which is followed up, of course, by Orcs raining arrows upon her. And uh, it it's very calamity it's very practical it's very maddy frankly to do it this way you lead with the named shot to all but guarantee a, a direct hit it's ranger after all there you go yeah i mean a named who has some focus on archery would have sufficed but ranger specifically yes all but guarantee a hit slows the person down because let's be honest an arrow through the throat is not a guaranteed kill on a martial focused name. And then now that they are <laughs> struggling to breathe, a volley of arrows to finish them off. I, you could easily see this being Cat luring him into the, or luring her into the courtyard where there's a line of crossbowmen ready. And then she easily blocks most of the quarrels and is hit once and kills kills the the young squire here. And I could see many, many villains doing exactly that or some similar mistake. And so even when this isn't necessarily about Black's unique brand of practicality, of pragmatism, there's still it's still very obvious here. It's still at the forefront of how he behaves. In summary, that is, rather than marriage, it is archery that brings us together today. I think that's a pretty good summary of this dream. Yes, thank you. Catherine wakes in a room she doesn't recognize. She can still feel the cold of the northern night on her skin. In the name dream, Catherine realizes she was watching Black, the same person she knew now, though the one she knows now is a little older. I think that's interesting. Whatever physical age Black was at the time of his brief combat with the commander, he has not, he was not frozen in it as villains eventually often are he certainly freezes he's what a 70 year old man at this point or something 
I don't recall the exact number, but that feels right. I don't believe him to be an ancient evil, but he's certainly an old man, and he's in the body of a not-old man, but he's an older man than he was as a squire, where he was a younger man. Do you see what I'm saying, man? I feel yeah. I, I would imagine that transitional names, like the squire, probably don't slow down your aging as much for a villain. And I am under the impression that villains' lack of aging is something that more or less scales with how successful and infamous they are. And at this point, he's successful, but he's just the squire. The Black Knight carries a level of infamy on its own, and I think as he grows into that, his aging, his physical like appearance changes less and less. He seems like an adult rather than a, I don't know how old he is as a squire, 20-ish year old, probably. Okay, but by that logic, that means that a villain like the Dead King would just stop aging, and he looks terrible right now. Yes, you're right. This story just has no consistency at all. And I know that's what you're saying, and I'm a little offended you would say something like that on our fan podcast. I really am grateful you put words into my mouth that are entirely honest and accurate representations of my beliefs in order to draw the ire of our large and violent fan base upon me so that you can inherit the podcast in my in the wake of my death that is the long-term goal get you canceled become the sole owner of the podcast easy pat as she's thinking through these things as she's thinking through the the details of the dream she starts to think about why she was shown this specific dream this specific scene from um, black's life and she thinks to herself so the dream shows me the previous squire killing a hero when I just let one go, a little heavy-handed as far as hints went. But it's, but I was not a subtle girl by nature. It makes sense that my name would be equally as blunt. I don't know. Is is it just me or is Kat misinterpreting this dream a little bit? Is she just not yes. great at interpreting the visions her, her role shows her? Yes. Okay. Yes, it is just me or yes, she's bad at dreams. Yes. Roger that. Uh, it, it, this doesn't seem like it's specifically saying, Kat, you made a mistake. Because if that were the case, the f- I feel like her name telling her she made a mistake is in the fact that, as we find out soon, her name is her name's power is being withheld from her. This really seems more related to learning from her, her mentor directly in a sense that Kat was being coldly practical. She was consigning Kahlo to war for her own ends and you know kind of for callow's ends but really for her own ends and the main focus of the dream is uh, a, a young maddie luring a woman into a trap and by his own words cheating to win it, it's cold-blooded practicality that seems to be the more important part of the dream to me than the than her name saying no look your predecessor killed a hero once that just that could have been anything. That I don't know. That that seems like such a black killing a hero is not a noteworthy event. It could it, that happens frequently. I have a feeling it doesn't seem like it's this specific one needed to be the case if it wasn't also talking about something else. But after he kills the hero, the the dream ends. But I can assure you, after he kills the hero, he spends a whole chapter thinking about how there's blood on his hands and he's killed before. But this time, oh, this time it's different. Oh, he planned that arrow volley. Oh. What is he becoming? Is it really worth it to do this to reform the Empire? I'm just mocking Catherine. No, but if the dream wanted to show her that she made a mistake, it would just show Black giving her the knife. Then it would be like, hey, look, this is your petard. You shall be hoisted by it. I think we had a similar discussion with Kat's first dream, which is also less of a dream and more a stab-induced hallucination, maybe. And there... (laughs) cat <laughs> comes out of these things these visions and latches on to the thing that she's thinking about and maybe misses some of the point which fair enough cat isn't a dream auger she's the squire who needs a bath black bathes regularly i don't want to spread callow stereotypes or anything but uh catherine needs a bath she could learn a, a thing or two from the dooney filthy backwater savages because this was definitely right the duty are filthy front water savages (laughs) right and this was definitely cats not a lack of bathing caused by say 
nearly dying and being in bed for a few days and blood sacrifices and whatever else is going on. Black has worked very closely with two different women in his entire life and will ignore all the others, Catherine and Militia. And I can promise you that if Militia were knocked out for a month, she would wake up pristine and unblemished. Yeah, but part of her name seems to be just making her the hottest person alive. Well, maybe Catherine shouldn't have a stinky name. Yeah, it's a squire, famously a stinky name. That's rough. What is the stinkiest name around? I feel as though we've there's at least one. I'm there may be more. At least one name where some kind of drunkenness is in the title. I don't know if if your entire identity revolves around you being drunk. I I can't imagine you smell great all the time. Also, any kind of traveler name, wandering oh. or what have you. If there was someone who was, say, no, here's a little use adjective, peregrine, they might just be a big stink boy. Yes, absolutely. The stinkiest, just absolutely awful. Someone who canonically cannot put on a white robe without it getting gray with the dust of the road. Exactly. And someone who just by being in the same room as a child, this child suffocates in their sleep. Yeah, he's Ooh. he's a smelly guy. Probably a plague bearer. Absolutely. Do you think we should mention on this podcast a little more frequently that we hate the Grilgum? Because I don't know that it comes up enough. Oh, is that what you were talking about? (laughs) You know what else is probably a stinky thing to be? Okay. Someone who works with bodies a lot. There's a skin-stealing name thing. Oh, yeah. But there are the medical mages who deal with stuff. But even more than that... What about mages that work with, say, lifeblood? Oh, okay. This was a transition. I wasn't sure if you just had another idea. We, as Kat wakes up, she <laughs> she meets with Captain briefly and uh, finds out about how she's alive. She guesses, fairly enough, that um, the Legion healers had something to do with it and is informed that, no, the Legion healers aren't up to snuff when it comes to somebody who was basically dead and then animated their own body with necromancy and, uh, you know, cat things. And we find out that there was a blood mage from the Swiftfoot tribe in camp. I am basing a lot on the name here, the Swiftfoot tribe. That's That's got to be orcish, right? Like, that's not goblin. Also, I don't know that we ever... What's our clans, though? Yeah. Do I only we... hear tribe in one context. That's true but if it's goblin or uh uh to grab do we get tribe out east that's possible and i don't know anything about ogre society because it never became relevant uh we i would assume not but an ogre blood mate would be awesome we do get the to grab do tribes as well so possibly to grab goblin would be weird i don't want a goblin in my blood of course also goblins actually the people with this person in their blood don't want the person in their blood either i think also true do we ever do we ever see a goblin mage of any kind or even hear about one the best i got is some start inheriting the knight later on but right late late on i guess i mean in a way that would let us lead us to believe that goblins have mages at this point i got nothing huh regardless i think i i bring this bit up whether it's a to mage which i think think seems likely it's not exactly clear um whoever it is it's not a human or elf it's not somebody who's uh a professional healer it's you know within the army or anything like that it's a tribal healer to use a frankly weighty term um and i don't know it seems like that's a, a trope you don't see too often except in cases where it's like uh the curse can only be fixed by the person in the tribe but the the idea that this healer outstrips the professional healers in the army in what is frankly pretty regular healing aside from the fact that it's at a very very high level because cat was pretty much dead put heavy asterisk on the pretty much and say actually was that's one of the things about uh this blood work we don't hear we hear about it occasionally in the text blood majory blood 
magicianing. If only they were a noun form of to do magic. Oh well. Uh, but this blood magic is vital for the greater plot of the story. But we see little of blood mages, including little of how and whether they are rare. And this suggests even in an imperial stronghold like Kalos Summerholm, go with it. It makes sense since the conquest. Blood mages are not even a scarcity, but a rarity. They are lucky to have one. In Praise, the most magical of all magic places, which, well, I guess that's how the, uh, what's the name of the Kingdom of the Dead? Uh, isn't it just that? Yep, it is. It, yeah, Kingdom of the Dead, really, the only thing that ever matters is Keter, though. But Praise is the most magical place outside of the Kingdom of the Dead, uh, which has more than 100% occurrence of magic in all its living members. Uh, they have trouble, they're lucky to have blood mages on hand. What type of forbidden magic is this? I do want to quibble a bit as far as most magical place, though. There are some a small number of giants who seem to have a lot of magic between them. Okay, but does that support my point? It does not. Uh, I'll withdraw my comment. Thank you. You're welcome. Also to be withdrawn are Kat's hesitancies over the death of Mooks. Uh, she finds out three people were... The lifeblood of three people was spilled to nearly resurrect her. And she thinks, I, I felt my stomach sink and that had a ragged breath. Three people dead just to heal me. And Captain didn't even seem to think of it as particularly notable. It's a nasty thing, but later on she gets into war calculations. And she spends lives slightly less frugally. By necessity, but... I mean, war calculations are one thing. She also has a specific unit of personal bodyguards where the entire point of the unit is hey y'all are on death's row death's row but instead come die for me specifically to keep me alive so i'm not sure cat okay yeah but also that's just kind of how militaries are right but i'm that's just military but worse it's just military, but worse, but it's just very personal there. Rather than spending lives to win a war, which is military, this is the parallels there are stark in my mind, since it's pulling people from death row to specifically die to save Cat. It's just a lot more of them than three. And she also likes some of them and knows them personally, which makes it better. You can sacrifice your friends, but not strangers. Friend will help you move. A best friend will help you move a body. And a death row conscript turned kind of friend will die for you we'll we'll move their body into the way of the fairy fire i need some more friends like that we'll make it a patreon tier a patreon tier yeah that's perfect pay us and you can be our personal bodyguards i think it's interesting that in order to acquire these sacrifices scribe has to file paperwork about it like i know that scribe's thing and i know that the empire is an imperial bureaucracy less so than certain free cities but bureaucracy but I just want to note, the Black Knight, Scribe, Captain, elected to follow procedure rather than simply doing the thing. Now, they may well have followed procedure uh, retroactively. It seemed like an emergency situation, but either way, they chose to follow procedure. It says something about them. Two things. First of all, I find it hard to believe that Scribe has ever done anything retroactively. And filed those papers in advance, didn't she? Of course. And also, I'm curious, do you think that Prace's bureaucracy here is a pretty recent invention? Like, Oh, absolutely. Okay. And the only reason they had to go through all that was because it's in Callow, which is shaped in Black's image. If they were in Wolof, they would have still had to go through a process, but that's, you know, slice your wrist lengthwise at the door of the ancient tomb where the prisoners are kept, smear the blood in a blasphemous glyph, walk past 12 wards that are enforced by demons ready to break free if, you know, blah, 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 the usual stuff. Right. It praises bureaucracy is uh, a product of black and scribe, I imagine. And I'm wondering how much of that is specifically scribe, having risen now to a high enough level that she can enforce her desire for that organization. Like, Black's big on organization. He reorganized an army. But the paperwork? Eudokia, how can you work for such a man? Don't you see what he's done? I have no choice. If I work with him, one day, I will reform all of the tax law in the land. 
That's way too dramatic a scene for Eudokia to have been involved. Eudokia, how could, where'd she go? There it is. Oh no, I've been stabbed from behind. So Catherine tries to rationalize, or sees whether she chooses to rationalize their deaths. She thinks it over, which is appropriate and normal. It 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 is a good trait to think about deaths that are related to you. You you should consider. But she knows that they are death row inmates who then died on the row, and says, "Oh, they weren't likely to have been very nice sorts. They wouldn't have gotten a death sentence otherwise." Catherine, your hobby is treason. Your plans are treason. You like treason. Treason is a death sentence. I, I don't. I'm not here trying to make you feel bad, but that's not a good rationalization here. Maybe they were mass killers, but that usually gets you a promotion. Bad rationalization, Catherine. Yeah. In a. <laughs> I feel like a death sentence isn't a particularly hard bar to clear under the laws of the Dread Empire. Definitely a, an odd rationalization for Cat to just buy into immediately and with no actual thought especially since these death row prisoners are specifically Callowin. it's not just people it's people who are associated with the kingdom that we recently conquered and who are constantly working on rebellions in some way or another come on cat figure it out and speaking Next time of we speak to ee which we do regularly Naturally. We should suggest that in the next publication of the story, it just become retitled. Come on, cat, figure it out. Yeah, I think that would be a pretty good title for the early chapters, for the early book. Practical Guide to Evil, book one. Come on, cat, figure it out. A Practical Guide to Evil, book two. Here there be devils. A Practical Guide to Evil, book three. I don't know where the books are divided. Um, nope, I have no idea. Dead King is coming ones. up soon. Practical Guide to Evil, book four. Dead King might be here, I forgot. Practical Guide to Evil, book five. It probably, Yeah, definitely Dead King at this point. One of those could probably just be called Arsenal. Three, I think. That was probably book three. Sounds right. As Kat's trying to work on this rationalization, she becomes re-aware of Captain's presence, and she thinks that Captain's presence has suddenly, suddenly feels intolerable. A blight to everything I was trying to accomplish. And Kat, I understand feeling like Captain's the enemy in this moment where you've been informed of this, but Captain is a blight toward everything you're trying to accomplish, which is definitely unlike and so far removed from, I don't know, fabricating an entire war within your homeland to consolidate personal power. I understand what Kat's trying to accomplish. But what she's trying to accomplish is at odds with what she's trying to accomplish. She's really a mess right now. She's really not thinking straight. Yeah, but, you know, at least she she doesn't like the bad stuff. And that's why she's she's got to work with really bad people and support them and also be bad all the time. Right. Next paragraph, she says, I'd chosen willingly to align myself with people who saw human sacrifice as just another tool in their arsenal. I mean, Kat, come on. There's a reason that we're a few years removed from the greatest monster of the age title belonging to maybe you. And I only say maybe because it depends on when you're looking at the exact at the, in this timeline, because there are periods where most people would say Kat. Ugh, Kat, she's a child right now. Are, are we judging her too harshly for what she becomes? Absolutely not. So. In Chapter Menace, Catherine is being Catherine and being all tough on the inside and thinking, oh, ho, ho, well, you know, I've killed people for less because I'm I'm hard and killer who who doesn't value human life if it gets me closer to my ends because I'm efficient and practical and grr. And all of a sudden. She spent the entire chapter worrying about lives lost. But remember, not too many lives have been lost. We have the other claimants who nobody's worried about, including Kat, so it doesn't matter. And the three death row prisoners, which she's tried to rationalize. When she finds out that the goblin fire was still burning, she's upset, but she finds out that the people were evacuated in time. And she says, a small relief. They wouldn't have to add more lives to my tally so soon after the last ones. Pick a lane, Catherine. I've killed over less. No, no, they, they died? People died for me? They're both reasonable viewpoints in terms of types of people and ways to be. 
though killing it's not a thing people should do by the way not to moralize but you should pick one it's like she doesn't have a fully formed brain yet or something it's also like we are one chapter before cat reaches a pretty momentous realization and makes a story defining decision that kind of resolves all of this stuff we're talking about right now it's great to dig into it's great to (laughs) to make fun of this child who is you know seeing people die for her sake and being conflicted over it but she uh, it is important to note that this all of our ragging on cat is very much we're making fun of this character we love because we love her there's uh things change very soon things resolve very soon yeah Cat's amazing. This book is amazing. And I'm being hard on a teenager because teenagers deserve nothing. Oh, of course. But yeah, absolutely. If I want to actually be honestly critical of someone, that person is Eudokia... What, what's her full name? Eudokia Black? She's like Black Sister or something, right? So so probably Eudokia Knight then? Eudokia Knight, yes. There you go. Eudokia, in quotation marks, scribe, Knight. Uh, Miss Knight is really failing here. Catherine tightens her belt, makes sure her knife's sheath was makes sure her knife's sheath was properly placed, and then notes, no sword, but that was to be expected after the lone swordsman's blade cut into it. Eudokia, why doesn't Catherine have a sword again? Wh- why did you let that happen? It's been days. I'm of two minds. One, yeah, she could have. Maybe I'm of three minds. Yeah, she could have. Two, possibly she knows that Cat's a little bit uh, not in Black's favor right now and is reflecting that by not giving her a shiny new goblin steel sword. But three, she's about to head to a public event and it's kind of weird for the squire to not have a sword at her hip. But speaking of scribe and failing, is it weird to you as well that in this public event, this public education, scribe is at Black's side, like standing there like she's important and respected and a public figure that doesn't that doesn't really fit nicely in with how i feel like scribe operates oh the scribe's only visible to catherine right now ah okay it's still selective background yeah only way i can get behind that but even though that's revealed to catherine nothing else is she shows up at the gallows with no idea what she's going to see i don't see the productivity of that why would you not say hey Catherine, we're going to watch a lot of people die you'll be upset but also you have no choice i think the shock of it helps hammer the lesson home more maybe also black wants to be there when she realizes and can't be sent off to fetch her or send himself off to fetch her in the middle of this i don't know i i think the coming to the realization of what's going on next to black while it's happening is part of what makes it so powerful so destructive to cat's current paradigm and i i gotta think that's intentional Catherine has a secret power though a secret power. i'm not talking about the pokemon move okay the gallows were no more than 30 feet away so i could see who was on them now there must have been 50 people standing in two lines behind the noose comma and i recognized every single one of them patrons from the lost crown a handful i glimpsed in the royal foundry who must have survived the night um I don't think I have good facial recognition. Let me get that out of the way. I think I have subpar facial recognition. I can meet someone, spend an afternoon with them, and not be able to picture their face in my head, though I usually will recognize them again. But not great facial recognition. That said, she recognizes 50 people from a bar and sedition group she visited once. There's... I mean, context is very important. She recognizes a couple of people and can start slotting in the other faces. There may be some of the brain trickery where, oh, this person's next to that person, therefore they most both are from the same place and time and uh, organization. But also, Kat has learned that was still functioning when she was there. And I know she doesn't fully have learned, yada, 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 pre-name. She's got learned. I feel like recall of, or not recall, Rather, the easier thing, recognition of faces probably slots into that well enough that she does it pretty well. Impressive. Oh, I don't disagree. But perhaps more impressive is Pat's hmm, blinders that she can put on so that she can focus only on a single moment without 
remembering any sort of history. She's she sees this. She's shocked. She's thinks that she can convince Black to stop what he's doing. You can't do this, I said urgently. Not all of them were members of the Suns. Some just had sympathies, and and he's she's cut off by Black explaining some things. Catherine, listen, Black trawls orphanages for potential names, uh, with villainous names being unlikely, meaning he's trawling orphanages for kids who will grow up to be heroes. I gotta tell you, I don't think he's just like talking to them and saying, oh, you probably have sympathies towards Kala. We should, I, what I'm saying here is there's zero chance Black is going to balk at murdering adults who are sympathetic towards outright treason. And the fact that she's trying to use that as the argument really shows that she's out of sorts right now. Though I do love imagining Black striding into an orphanage, gathering all the kids into a classroom. He grabs a chair, sits on it backwards in front of them. Of course. Has some real talk about heroes. Has Captain bring in a captive hero, torture and kills him in front of the kids. And it's like, hey, this is what happens if you're good. Okay, bye now. That's what I Yeah, he's got a little, like, I'm the Black Knight, and I'm here to say, if you want to get old, don't get a name. And, you know, the the kind of, like, really cool rap that those substitute teachers sometimes bring in, I could see him doing that. And it would be choice. In fact, I wonder what it would take to put something like that together. A little little Black Knight (laughs) teaching an orphanage class. We know some talented people. Hmm. But you know what the greatest talent of all is? Friendship. Chronomancy. Dang, I that was my second guess. But in addition to chronomancy, name a man nom, nomenclature. Nomenclature. The power over it. names. Right. Which I mean is something Catherine believes Black has. She can't reach her name and says, You bound my name. I accused him, which great conclusion to leap to, I gotta say. Honestly, but in just you know, not as any kind of like hypothetical or just as a hypothetical, not as any kind of reference. Somebody with that kind of ability just over other people's names that would just be absurd and story breaking surely but we find out that no black didn't really have anything to do with it directly other than he influences her name by being the knight to her squire of course but i think that's getting into the weeds a little bit um he says you took action that ran against your name's nature and so damaged your access to it that's apparently a temporary thing it's implied he's not concerned if it were a permanent thing she wouldn't be here right now frankly it's very interesting though especially given the line of discussion we've been having over the last since we started hearing about names 10 chapters ago we go back and forth a lot about the weight of the mantle the the influence of somebody's role versus the person the named and this example here of the name itself the mantle itself having volition it it, sure she damaged her access to it is one way of looking at it but given how things are discussed at later and earlier points it i it feels to me like she did the wrong thing and her mantle withdrew a bit i don't know it's something that i wonder why we don't see more of this especially later on I, i know there is at least some mention from Kat, I believe, about how there are named who are created for a specific purpose and they have to abandon that purpose to fight the um, the Dead King. Great. Makes sense. Everybody's banding together to fight the apocalypse. Somebody like, um, the example that's coming to my mind is Mirror Knight, who has a very specific niche focused purpose, a, a purpose that it revolves around not just a specific quest, but a location. He goes all across Proser, all across the the Kingdom of the Dead, and there's never a mention... I mean, he he hangs out in Arsenal and steals an artifact, kind of. I, I You know, he's a busy guy, and he never there's never a mention of his name growing weaker or him losing access to part of its abilities or anything like that, despite him being so far from his purpose and mr battery ram getting weaker exactly (laughs) so i I don't know is this a case of cats so new to her name that she and her mantle aren't close enough where they can be easily damaged is this a case that this is not just wrong but opposed i I don't know it's 
I would expect to see this kind of thing more. The only example that's, there are two other examples that come to mind um, where something like this has happened. There's Black Knight, of course, but that's more of a transition away from a name than him doing something opposed to it. He's just not that person anymore, um, similar to the White Knight. And then Ranger, of course, who does have a more opposition action. She she definitely does the wrong thing, uh, whereas Black and White just seem to not be in the same position anymore, temporarily for one, permanently for the other. And it makes you see why Catherine opts to just not have a name mm-hmm. for so long. Until she gets a name that you get to decide what the name do. It seems like a weakness of the genre. Yeah, Kat really does have it all figured out, is what you're saying. Has anyone ever accused Catherine Foundling of anything but considered prudential, deliberate action? Honestly, if I were listening to someone or to someone's talk about Kat and they brought up how she made mistakes because she wasn't thinking things through clearly or was lacking in judgment, I'd probably stop listening to them on the spot but well Catherine doesn't think things through black does he very much does he responds cat accuses him of punishing her by killing these 50 calowins and he says i am hanging traitors who took up arms against the tower he corrected sharply i am not in the habit of wasting lives over petty lessons and waste is definitely a choice word here and but even with it there it seems to me like there's a word missing from this sentence, not in a typo sense, but just in the way that Black is explaining things. Like the word just or only or something like that, where he'd be saying, I'm not in the habit of killing people only for petty lessons. Because let's be honest here, if Black doesn't do anything for one reason, this is not who he is. And it seems like I would fully believe that he would be willing to kill 50 Callowins as traitors, absolutely. And also to teach Kat a lesson, because I think that's what he's doing here. And he's just lying to her right now, despite saying he's not going to do that. The fact that he forces her to watch and these are the consequences of your actions. He's teaching a lesson. It's not a punishment, but it's a lesson. Also, it's a punishment. It's terribly punitive. Consequences. Control. Why are you such a good dad? Hashtag get me a daddy like that. Am I right? Hard to argue. In front of a crowd. They speak to each other, and Catherine's fingers close around the handle of her knife. Nope, this isn't the last chapter of Black's entire arc. This is one of the earliest chapters in the book, but we're going to see this again. Keep an eye on that knife. I really appreciate you pointing out, <laughs> reminding people to keep an eye on the knife in this reread of A Practical Guide to Evil. Thank you for that. I, I was planning to lose track of it this time. It's Chekhov's knife. It is Chekhov's knife. Time, however. Black doesn't give her a big old hug and get himself stabbed. Nope. He forces her to obey him using his named power. Um, We've seen speaking before. We've seen capital S speaking before with Mazus. But here, Black is speaking to Cat. I know Cat's name is blocked right now. um, And I don't know. I, I just feel like we should maybe talk a little bit about speaking. Obviously, only named can speak about speaking to other named. Cat can do it later, but her entire power set later on is built around that kind of thing. So that's an outlier and really doesn't factor in in my book. The Black Knight can do it to his squire. Is it a power imbalance that allows this? Could um, could militia speak to Black to scribe? I'm pretty certain militia could speak to anyone. Maybe. I could she. I mean. Even to heroes, uh, it is there an authority aspect, like a, a built-in authority? Is it just a hierarchy of power? Is this only because Cat's name is bound right now? I'm just wondering where how speaking works. It it I want to say it is only where it narratively works for a command, where a command has narrative weight behind it, and so names are almost never going to be able to speak to each other because that narrative ending with somebody saying don't do this thing anymore and the other your rival just agreeing doesn't it's not very satisfying well i remind you that mr knight speaks at heiress after marchford which is not a direct line of authority that's true so is it it very well might be a power imbalance or simply maybe black is just very good at speaking his name is about conquest it's about domination of other people 
maybe he speaking is just one of those things that he does better than most named. It seems to correlate with authority and raw power. But since I don't believe we ever see it used in battle in any way, drop your sword. I'm willing to suspect it's not even an option in battle, with the exception of maybe Militia could. I think Militia can do anything, because she's pretty. We'll keep an eye on it. Definitely. I, speaking at the end of the story is one of those parts of the story that's interesting, and you feel like you've got a grasp on it, but I really want to, yeah, definitely pay attention to it as we go through and see the instances where it comes up, because I feel like there's a very long period in the middle chunk of the story where no one ever speaks. Let's watch. And speaking of paying attention to things as they come up throughout the rest of this very long book, Kat tries to argue with Black, obviously, and Black is displeased with her and says, did you think this was a game, Catherine, that actions would not have consequences? Power cuts both ways. Authority comes with responsibility. Ambitions such as yours demand sacrifice. So stand here and watch. The beginning of that, the, the actions would not have consequences question is unbelievably foundational to me that it's baked into reality here more so than our reality even. Obviously, actions have consequences in real life. The only people who don't see that are literal children, probably. Uh, and But having a narrative weight adds a layer to that that Black is aware of, that Cat becomes aware of, that people at their tier know about. And I don't know, it, it's, it's one of those things that in, in both a narrative sense, a, a meta sense, Cat is aware of, but also just in a very practical sense, she's learning from Black. She grows up to be this person who is who puts practicality ahead of most other things. And I don't know, there's this lesson here, this lesson that Black is giving just seems completely foundational to Cat, to a lot of the story we get. And then he follows that up with the ambitions such as yours demand sacrifice. He plays a little bit at the beginning of this with uh, maybe hinting that he doesn't know exactly what happened with William. I'm sure that's a little foggy. But he obviously knows Kat's game, both his her long-term game and maybe even what she did just now. But he doesn't stop her. He doesn't, especially now that she doesn't really have full access to her squireship, she doesn't just say, or he doesn't just say, we're done. You're not my squire anymore. <laughs> I'm going to start over. He doesn't, you know, frankly, just kill her. He continues on with his plans. He teaches her. He makes this a, a teaching moment, if you will. And I don't know. It, I don't know what he's hoping for. Obviously, he grows fond of Kat and he wants her to be successful in what she's trying to do because that's what a parent does. But right now, she's his squire it seems weird that he's so willing to let her have these ambitions that are so opposed to what he claims to be standing for black is an idealist in a really interesting way he has ends for which he has worked for which he continues to work that are distinct defined and absolute and he has a methodology by which he works to get there he came to the conclusion but he has faith in his methodology. He has faith that he has the right way to do things, perhaps even more than he has faith that he has the right conclusion. And so he sees Catherine operating by a more juvenile, a less polished version of the same thing. And he says, I'm going to perfect her process. And wherever she ends up, that must be something I can stand by. So long as she learns the basics. Actions have consequences. Authority comes with responsibility. Ambitions demand sacrifice. Know this. Work under the terms laid out. Fight against that awful authority we both know about. And whatever you do, I'll be proud of you, my girl. It's a very touching moment. Because Catherine was like Black. Implacable, stalwart, and brave. She would never back down. Never let something horrible happen and not act against it. The crowd let out a long breath, and just like that, it was over. Tens of thousands stood in the Court of Swords, surrounding less than 200 legionaries. But as the last corpse dropped under the gallows, they started to disperse. Cowed, just like me. We never see Cat cowed, except here and maybe, 
maybe when she's dying because winter's getting sucked out of her maybe but this having her autonomy taken from her having the power that she tasted be gone having everything that she did be thrown back in her face seeing her people tens of thousands of calvin's cowed this does it to her she's she's young she's still learning she's still figuring out who she is she's not she doesn't have her philosophy figured out yet but it it's powerful to have Catherine foundling say cowed just like me because it's weird to say so early on and when the stakes are so comparatively low and i recognize it must be said with a great asterisk and with a certain amount of uh suspension of disbelief but in some ways this feels like Catherine's lowest point in the series not her greatest not the greatest tragedy not the greatest horror not the great her greatest total impotence even later on the world's ending but she can rage against it and even when it seems hopeless she has guaranteed her rage i legitimately think as much as there's questionable psychology to what i'm about to say the emotional well, the is a social science isn't right it? it's pretty soft um <laughs> the, the emotional calluses she builds up over the course of this story probably have something to do with that this is the most powerless she ever is. Like, even when she's losing badly to goddesses, she's still Catherine Foundling. Yeah, she's going to die, but I don't know that... She's going to take the entire Everdark with her. <laughs> I don't know that the powerlessness is so gritty and real and tangible as it is right here, where she has no power, was just spoken to, and is watching 50 people die and there is literally nothing she can do about it and like you said not even really rage against it because oops she has to stand there and watch and does not have an option oops all hangings Gosh. <laughs> as she's dealing with this she's goes into an alleyway to to cry uh to see it's not had good luck in alleyways no to to fall apart basically understandable and one of the things she mentions in here is uh, she'd done this to herself, feeling clever and in control. She talks about how none of this felt real until this moment. It felt like a dream, which, again, we talked about cats not great with dreams. But it's it, basically I felt like I was living a legend or reading a legend even. It's talking to the calamities and named visions and powers and magic and all of these things. It talks about I bantered with the villains who soaked the pages of history books in blood. And how she's <laughs> struggling with the uh, the dissonance of Black, who is, you know, the Black Knight of the Conquest. But he's also a pretty chill guy who laughs at jokes and says silly things sometimes and they banters with his friends. It's a weird moment for Kat because even in her lowest moments later in Dire Straits, she never really loses <laughs> loses her quippiness her banter and this might be the only instant in the entire book the entire work where she regrets banter where she regret regrets goofing off with the people around her regardless of what she thinks of them and again it makes sense for that to be this moment i know we we take a pretty light tone with things but this story is uh, full of actually powerful emotional moments for the characters and also for the readers and this is absolutely one of them uh we can goof on cat and that's great and all she's worth goofing on but it's what we're paid the big big podcast bucks for exactly right yeah i mean if we don't patreon.com <laughs> -E. if, if we don't goof the lights turn off but legitimately this this scene this whole chapter which is a pretty short chapter with a lot of baggage attached to it it's it's powerful it, it really it you feel the despair the hopelessness the the powerlessness the how cat is falling apart it makes sense it's it can be difficult to read in a way that you know twinging your empathy but it can also be exciting to read good to read like in the way that very very well done art is enjoyable to consume even if it's a very hard depressing topic i don't know it's it's a especially these last couple paragraphs they're they're 
they're heavy stuff. Some things are worth suffering through. But I'm afraid that if we want to suffer any further, it will have to be next week. I think that you're right, because that is all the time we have for today, folks. Join us next time on Podcast Guys Talking Erratic Errata as we discuss... Rivers. Roads. And ruins. Podcast Guys Talking Erratic Errata is a fan-made podcast discussing Erratic Errata's A Practical Guide to Evil. Check out the full serial at practicalguidetoevil.wordpress.com. Intro music for this episode was The Cradle of Your Soul by Lemon Music Studio. Music for the epigraph was The Beat of Nature by Olexi. Outro music, which even now is elevating my voice to the realms of the divine, is Price of Freedom by Daddy S. Music. The music is provided by the generous license of pixabay.com music. Go and support all the artists who make this work possible by providing their stories and sounds free of charge. If you'd like to support this podcast, follow us on Twitter at TheLongPrice. Do you have questions, comments, or contributions? Are you overwhelmed by the urge to correct our errors? Email us at TheLongPrice at gmail.com. If you'd like to materially support our work, Find our Patreon at patreon.com slash p-g-t-e-e. Join the ranks of our patrons and be called by name, receive personalized stories and art, or even join a p-g-t-e-inspired RPG. We implore you, don't consider joining unless you're already supporting the artists who make this all possible. Special thanks to our patron and liege, all with the claimant, never the named, as well as the hordes of cattle below. Next week, Chapter 14, Villain. So as I'm editing this, I realize something. I completely misinterpreted a line. Catherine was talking about being up north in the name dream, and I thought she was talking about in Summerholm, which didn't make sense. Hence, this. Catherine awakes in a room she doesn't recognize. She can still feel the cold of the northern night on her skin. And this is what I have a problem with. Summerholm is south of Lore. Has Catherine been anywhere other than... What she is currently claiming is north. Huh. Summerholm is not a particularly northy place. It's not southern. Is Colernia just a northern continent? You know, it's really, really, really far north. Europe. But when I'm in Italy, I do not say, wow, the northern night is chilly. Well, I mean, when in Rome and all of that. I say, is that Chris Pratt? <laughs> and thankfully, okay, it has well, not yet been. I, I can tell that you've definitely spent a lot of time in Italy. Those are very Italian things to think and say. What is more Italian than Chris Pratt? If I follow your train of thought correctly, callow? There you go. But the spicy meatball in her thinking today is that